I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Tonight on the 11 o'clock news. Snow, is it right around the corner? Find out tonight on the 11 o'clock news. Also, the FBI foiled a terrorist attack at the downtown Portland tree lighting ceremony. What are they going to foil next? We're live on the street with up-to-the-minute reports from Chutney Hardigan and the News 7 Mobile Weather Center. Thanks, you. I'm at the completely snow-free scene downtown where the FBI have just arrested 19-year-old Jeffrey Tannett. The suspect claimed he was just coming to this coffee house to meet up with members of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction message board. It turns out, however, that the members of that message board were the FBI all along, including the 19-year-old Jeffrey Tannen. It was really awkward. Stay tuned for further developments as they develop. Also, no snow yet, but I'll be standing out here all night just in case. But I can't stress enough, no snow yet. Also at 11, the high school sports report with our own Kyle Draper. Hey there, games have been postponed all over the metro area for fear of the impending so-called ice apocalypse of the millennium. I'm down here at Aloha High School where they were expecting to take on LaSalle in some head-to-head football action, but uh, no, because our own Clark Filberton assured the entire town without question that we would have snow and freezing temperatures tonight, and, well, the game's been canceled. This was especially bad news for Aloha quarterback Seth Foster as there was an NFL scout here to check him out once in a million lifetime opportunity. Uh, Sadly, because of the impending ice and freezing rain again, um... That opportunity has been eviscerated. Uh, hopes dashed. Dreams murdered. You ruined my son's life, Filberton! But, you know, I'll be here all night at the empty field to report in on any snowfall. Should it happen. Ever. Oh, look at that. Sprinklers just came on. <laughs> How could that happen with the freezing temperatures? All right. It's not freezing at all. 
Great. And we'll hear from our consumer expert, Jennifer McElhaney, on how the local economy is faring this holiday season. Thank you, Dan. I'm down here at the Lloyd Center where I'm looking at a ghost town. I have here Raven, a clerk at the popular teen novelty shop, Hot Topic. This is usually the busiest time of the year. Why do you think sales are down? Uh, because some a-hole on the news like said it was going to snow. There you have it. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Snow MG, there is tote snow snow here at Lloyd Center. But don't fret, I'll be here all night to report on the record snowfall, should it ever happen, which of course, I doubt. Oh, and can someone please tell Filberton that he's absolutely not getting any tonight or any other night. All right. Thanks, Jennifer. And don't miss our up-to-the-minute weather, school closures, and flight cancellations with 18-year weather veteran Clark Filberton. Uh, I'm Clark Filberton. I'm sorry. Uh, So very, very sorry. You guys know that I'm just reading the radar, right? I, I interpret what I see, and I report it to you. I don't actually invent the weather or its mercurial nature. Like life... The weather changes, and uh, we just have to put chains on our cars and stop being big baby wussy types and roll with the snowy, icy, rainy, or possibly dry punches. So please, just please, please stop with the threats and the egg throwing. I'm, I'm not a god, okay? I'm just a man. If there's anyone to blame, it's... It's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon... The city that gets nervous when it comes to snow. If somebody gets dandruff, we start putting on chains and closing schools. It's Livewire! And now it's the host of Livewire, who prefers her blizzards with M&M's or cookie dough, Courtney Hameister! Thank you so much for coming out tonight. We have another great literary show for you tonight. Justin Hawking of the Independent... Publishing Resource Center is here with a never-before-heard excerpt from his work in progress. The hilarious Todd Levin is here tonight with a very illuminating book he co-authored called Sex, Our Bodies Are Junk. (laughs) And our musical guest tonight is a woman who knows her way around a looping pedal. Laura Veers is with us. Before we get to all that fabulousness, please dig this fabulousness. The members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as usual, poet Scott Poole, the author of Hiding from Salesmen, will take one single hour, the self-same hour, we will be chatting and gallivanting upon the stage to write a poem that encompasses all that he's learned tonight. Scott Poole, everybody. Scott, go write some stuff. And we couldn't do any of it without our house band. Please welcome Jim Brumberg and the M Chops. I'm sorry, did you want something? Hey. (laughs) Well, 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, Todd Levin will be with us later, and he's going to discuss his highly informative manual, Sex, Our Bodies, Our Junk. Uh, will you be brave and buy it? Because it, it actually looks an awful lot like a real sex manual, and some people think it's kind of unsexy to buy one of those. I, I find this weird. I feel like sex is unique in that there may not be another act in which people are just inherently supposed to know how to please you or it somehow takes all the romance out of it. Imagine going to your hairdresser and when he asks you what you want done, you respond, if I tell you that, it makes the hairstyling experience less satisfying for me. <laughs> what I'd like for you to do is just start cutting my hair... And then attempt to glean what I want by reading any subtle verbal and physical cues that might lead you in the right direction. If you're, if you're both freakishly intuitive and lucky. And just to forewarn you, I might periodically grab your hands in frustration and lead you back on the right track. If you attempt to like tease my hair or give me a perm, which you should have known I hated without my ever saying a word. Or perhaps going in for neurosurgery and having the surgeon say, no, no, I didn't read any of the manuals because I believe a real neurosurgeon just inherently knows. I'm just going to go ahead and keep poking around in there until something hits. <laughs> or walking into a restaurant. What can I get for you folks? The waiter asks. You don't know, you respond. Worst waiter ever. <laughs> Talking about sex doesn't take the romance out of it, but being terrible at it definitely does. <laughs> so perhaps you should consider buying a manual. It doesn't have to be this fake one, like Todd Levin's, but it'll probably be funnier if it is. And just place it next to the place where sex periodically happens. Your bed, the living room couch, the General Assembly building at the UN. <laughs> and hope that it just sparks some conversations. Perhaps casually leave it open to the page that has that thing you were hoping to try. And when your partner asks if there was a reason you left it open to that page, you can say, no, it wasn't me. It must have been the dog, which will make your partner assume the dog is interested in that thing, which could get really awkward, but at least you've planted the idea. These are small victories, but they could lead to never getting a sexual perm again, if you know what I'm saying. Right? Well, well, we'll talk about all that later in the show with Todd Levin. Uh, for now, let's get on to our amazing musical guest tonight. She released her first record in 1999, and since then has released six more full-length albums with 2005's Year of Meteors, a New York Times critic's choice. Her latest record, July Flame, with longtime producer Tucker Martin, has been called one of the best records of 2010 by both The Washington Post and the Decemberists Colin Malloy. With songs from that record, please welcome Laura Veers to Livewire. Thank you. Joining me on violin and vocals is Annalisa Tornfelt. Like 
taken to the air, spin their emeraldine, wept across swales and prairies, and my stampeding buffalo stops in their tracks and watches the snow falling through the old tree when you give your heart to me. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to have you back. It's been about three years, maybe? I think so. Yeah, I played a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about th this record and the name of the record. I understand there's kind of an interesting story about July Flame and, and how you came to name the record that. I was in, a, in the Saturday market downtown and saw a name of a peach called July Flame, and I thought that would be a good song title, so I went home and wrote a song, and I was in a period of writer's block at that time and feeling sort of down about songwriting, and that song actually worked, and so it sort of turned a corner for me with my writing, and then I realized over the course of writing a bunch more songs that that would be a good album title as well. Well, is it easier for you if you have an external prompt like that? It is. I often start with the title, although sometimes I'm really just coming from just a noodling place, like noodle around on the guitar and come up with a melody, and then find some inspiring term or something from a book or something to spark a lyrical idea, and then I'll go from there. But in this case, I started with a title, which is a good um, structuring thing for songwriting. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a lot of writers who will just reach into a drawer and just grab the first thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that they feel in there and just pull it out and decide to write something about that. Sometimes it's awkward if it's, say, a sex toy. But then you maybe, have erotica. Or maybe awkward for you, but... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, there seems to be a lot of stuff about nature in this record. Uh, th you talk about thirsty ground, swales and prairies, spring, old oak trees. Is there a reason for that, for this record? Um, well, I've always done that, and I don't know why that is. I guess it's just there. I mean, 
the sun is shining, so try to find a way to talk about that in a new way. And so, um, you know, I've, I've gotten some acclaim in Europe, and they think my music is so American, so Americana, and that I live in, like, a hut with a view of the sea. <laughs> it's like, no, I live in Portland, Oregon, like, in a city, a few blocks from here, actually, walk out and get some Thai food for takeout. I mean, it's, you know, I do find nature inspiring because it is so beautiful, but it's also right around us all the time, and I think that's why it keeps coming back to me. Yeah, and more in Portland, too. It's easier to get to. Yeah, and, but it's also right there. It's like there's a spider on the porch. You know, there's flowers in the garden right next to you. There's a tree with the leaves turning in the, with the season. So it's, it's, it's true that we have the beautiful gorge and the ocean and the mountains and everything, but you can, you can see it right here in the, in the town or even just in the cracks of the sidewalk. Yeah. Now, you had a, a, a child I fairly did. recently, Tennessee, yeah. mm-hmm. and you toured. You were pretty pregnant as you were touring. Yeah, four months of the pregnancy, we toured all over Europe and the States, and then he's already been on tour seven weeks of his life. He's seven months old. He's really a great traveler, and I hope that he can continue to be that way. I mean, he's not mobile. He can't move, so he can't get away <laughs> from me yet. So, so I think that it's in my favor to take him out now. Kristen Hirsch, actually, she, her bus is like the Partridge family bus. Mm-hmm. She just travels with her whole yeah, family. Yeah, she's and, great. Yeah, does a, real, does a really good job with it. So. And, you know, best lullabies ever in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. So you're, you've got a lucky kid. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, you're going to come back later and sing one more song yes, for will. us. It's lovely having you. Thanks so much thank for joining much. us. Laura Veers and Annalisa Tornfeld, everybody. That was Laura Veers, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we're like a great date, but without the part where you're trying to discern from subtle cues whether or not we're going to break your heart into tiny little sobbing, bloody pieces. (laughs) Coming up, memoirist Justin Hawking, humorist Todd Levin, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Sorry, babe, I'm a bit late. I, I couldn't find parking. Stan, we have to break up. What? I'm in love with Julian. Julian? The, the, the friggin' shark guy? Listen, Stan, you're a great person with a lot going for yourself, but Julian saved me from certain death. Katie, I, I told my folks about our engagement, and we just co-signed on that little cottage in, in New England. And you made me burn my little black book in front of you just to prove my loyalty. Yeah, that's great, Stan. It really is, but... 
Did you jump off a boat and wrench the tail of a great white shark until he released his grip on me? Did you do that? No, I don't think you did. Katie, I I wasn't even there, okay? Exactly. You weren't there. And while Julian was scooping me to safety in his bronzed arms, you were lounging about in the hotel room. Lounging about? I had two broken legs after I fell from that coconut tree. Coconuts you asked me to fetch, might I add. Yeah, it's always about you, isn't it, Stan? What? Look, Julian's waiting for me on the motorcycle. I gotta go. But Katie, no! Men, are you tired of losing your girlfriend to a man who saved her life? (laughs) Hi, I'm Gary Filson, founder of the online dating site Secure Investment. Losing your beloved to a hero could be a tough experience. My girlfriends have dumped me for dudes who pulled them from earthquake wreckage, resuscitated them back to life, and even rescued them from out-of-control city buses. For years, I beat myself up over failing as a man, for never being able to compete with a guy who saved her life, for having small genitalia. But then I got to thinking, hey, wait a minute. What about the women left on the sidelines when those heroes stole my girlfriends? Surely they must feel the same. I'm Angela Cabot, and I was one such woman. Three years ago, my boyfriend Rick jumped onto the subway tracks and pulled a woman to safety having an epileptic seizure. It made all the papers. Now those two are married. Six years of my life devoted to that man, and along comes some klutzy spazoid, and it's, I'm sorry, Angela, and fate brought us together, and you just don't understand, Angela. Meeting in a grief chat room, Angela and I shared our stories and eventually decided to give it a shot, and now we couldn't be happier. (laughs) Well, unless Rick stayed with me. Right, well, what I'm saying is dating you is better than not dating anybody. Oh, Okay, right, yeah, I'll agree with that. As a member of Secure Investments, we'll match you up with a person who's been betrayed or dumped due to dramatic events beyond their control. Using a 500-question test, we'll determine the exact level of bitterness and spite flowing through your veins. Our computer will then sink you to a person with the same level of resentment so you can wallow in your shame and misery together. At the end of the day, I know Gary here is too chicken-livered to ever jeopardize his own safety to help someone else, and that's a lack of dependability I can count on. Um, thank you. You're welcome. So stop laying in bed wondering how life would have been if you kicked the gun out of that bank robber's hand instead. You would have got shot. Okay, probably, but, you know. And quit worrying if you should have staged your own seizure on the subway tracks just to win back your boyfriend. Huh? Uh, Nothing. All right, it's time to stop harping on your failure as a hero and move on with Secure Investments. Secure Investments, cause cowards need love too. As the director of the Independent Publishing Resource Center, our next guest helps people to publish their own stories without having to rely on a publishing house, or even worse, Kinko's. He is also the founder of IPRC's year-long certificate program in creative writing. He's written several books, including Beach 90th. His essays and short stories have appeared in Open City, The Normal School, Travel Oregon Magazine, The Portland Review, and Portland Noir Anthology. Here with an excerpt from a longer work in progress about growing up with 12 step-siblings, please welcome Justin Hawking to Livewire. (laughs) 
When my parents divorced in 1978, I was an only child. But after a complicated string of remarriages in the 1980s, that legendary decade of excess, I accrued a grand total of 12 step-siblings. When I explain this to people in my generation, they sometimes make Brady Bunch references, at which point I remind them that the Brady Bunch had six kids, whereas I have 12 step-siblings. If anything, it was like the Brady Bunch on low-grade cocaine. (laughs) And true to that analogy, many of my step-siblings were hard-partying, unruly. Several ended up in the kind of places where they take away your shoes and keys. For this reason, I often refer to them as the 12 steps. (laughs) Kristen Rose was the first and perhaps unruliest of the 12 steps. Just before our parents married, her older brother Derek died in a drunk driving accident. Kristen was, of course, devastated. At age 15, she tried desperately to keep her brother's spirit alive the only way she knew how, through partying. Though I was still in grade school, I was Kristen's new little brother, which meant my own partying career was fated to begin early. In fact, it began the summer I turned 11, when the two of us gathered up all our blankets and pillows and stuffed animals and slept out on the big trampoline in the backyard. After pretending to be asleep for an hour, Kristen stripped off a pair of pantyhose and began stretching them over my stuffed pink panther's head. Why are you putting pantyhose on the pink panther? I whispered. Disappearing act, she said. You're going to make the pink panther disappear? No, lame ass. I'm going to make us disappear. I knew that if anyone could make two kids disappear, it was Kristen, who prided herself as a sort of amateur magician. Our first Halloween together, she turned off all the lights and gathered the family around a table decorated with a black sheet flickering candles in a big bowl of steaming dry ice. Decked out in a black turtleneck and heavy mascara, Kristen ran through a series of card tricks and sleights of hand that she'd picked up from a Parker Brothers magic kit. For the finale, she draped a little black cloth over her thumb with an exaggerated magician's flourish, then pushed three long sewing needles and a thumbtack deep into the hooded appendage, never losing her natural showman's smile. Afterward, I begged her to reveal that last trick. Checking to make sure her mom was out of earshot, she leaned down and whispered in my ear, Before the show, I popped a painkiller in five of my mother's Valiums. I I feel totally no pain. Back on the trampoline and satisfied with her work on the Pink Panther, Kristen stuffed her sleeping bag with blankets, creating what looked like a cotton-slash-polyblend mummy. For the finishing touch, she packed the pink panther on top, its panty-clad head poking out in a grotesque imitation of her own. Where are we going? I asked, following her lead and stuffing my own sleeping bag. Gilstrap's field, she said. There's a rager going down tonight. Bonfire party. And you're the designated driver, kiddo. (laughs) We crept through the damp grass toward the storage shed, my heart hitting maximum RPMs. We were about to take my little Yamaha dirt bike out on an actual paved road, something forbidden to me under any circumstances. Not only that, but we were doing it hours past my bedtime in that special deep nighttime 
the dangerous province of beer bliss teenagers in fast cars and lover boy t shirts. At the end of our long dirt lane, I kick started the YZ80, bringing the two stroke engine ripping to life. Kristen climbed on back, and then we rocketed, headlightless, into the night. A quarter mile later, we stashed my bike in the sagebrush and approached the party, guided through hazy darkness by the sound of ACDC's Highway to Hell blaring from a lifted Ford pickup. The truck's owner, a heavyset guy with a post-pubescent mustache, gave Kristen a bear hug, beer sloshing from the 40 ounce of Budweiser in his right hand. His name was Jorge, and along with a handshake, he offered me the bottle. Jorge then invited me up into his truck, which had the minty, faintly digestive scent of chewing tobacco. From the elevated cab, we watched as Kristen and a throng of denim and leather-clad teenagers danced and headbanged around the towering bonfire, smoke and embers and ash twisting 30 feet up into the sky, the whole thing like some backwoods version of a Motley Crue video. Jorge passed me the bottle again. I didn't really like the taste, so I just mouthed the lip without drinking. One of the many pitfalls of growing up with older step-siblings was this constant longing to be bigger, older, a grown-up. And here at this party full of drunken semi-adults, separated from my motorcycle and sitting inside a monster truck, I felt unsettled, even smaller than usual. Hey, you know your sister's a total babe, right? Jorge asked. I shrugged, unsure how to field such a loaded question. Even at 11 years old, I vaguely understood that an affirmative answer would lead to incest territory, while a negative answer might make me sound gay. (laughs) I was too young to fully comprehend either of these concepts, but I understood that incest and gayness were taboo qualities for dudes in lifted pickups. (laughs) Come on, he said, nudging me. You know what I'm talking about. Just at that moment, down by the bonfire, Kristen stripped off her beer-soaked Izod t-shirt and flung it into the fire, eliciting a chorus of catcalls and screams. A guy in a leather vest lifted her onto his shoulders, danced around with her like that, my sister teetering over the flames in nothing but jeans and a bright red bra. You see that, Jorge said? Of all the stepsisters out there, you scored Kristen Rose. Dude, you are so lucky. There was a long silence. The clock on Jorge's dashboard read 3.27 a.m. I did feel lucky in a way, but also scared for Kristen. And though I'd never admit it, scared for myself. It was just starting to get light out by the time we made it back to our dirt lane, a pale green haze sneaking up behind the mountains. I'd never seen the sunrise from the night side before, but I didn't feel tired, not one bit. I felt like I'd crossed into some new, exhilarating, but inhospitable territory, like the first fur-hooded men to reach the North Pole. I wanted to plant a starry flag to prove I'd been there, that I'd stayed up all night and drank beer and listened to heavy metal. We got away with it, but soon after, Kristen's disappearing acts started to lose their magic. A few weeks later, she got picked up by the police while wandering around drunk in the graveyard where Derek was buried. Then she was expelled from high school and sent off to a reform school located deep in the mountains. After a few months of relatively good behavior, she and a new schoolmate broke into the nurse's office, stole a box of medical supplies, and threw a NyQuil party in their dorm room. She was in pretty good spirits the day we picked her up and delivered her to rehab in Denver, 
even though she'd had her stomach pumped the night before. In the back seat, she flashed me her devious magician smile, like she had everything under control, like this was just all part of the act, as if she could actually push tax through her thumb or poison herself or party away all her grief for Derek, all without feeling a thing. A few weeks earlier, though, I'd rummaged through her closet and found the Parker Brothers magic kit with directions for the needle and the thumb act. Similar to her sleeping bag illusion, it relied on the use of a dummy, in this case a dummy thumb carved out of a potato. The little black sheet hid the fact that the needles were piercing a vegetable, not actual skin. I felt a little sad for Kristen then, standing in her closet, surrounded by her unworn black Sabbath sweatshirts and battered 501s. It turned out that, even with all the drinking and drugs, Kristen had as little tolerance for pain as the rest of us. Thanks. Justin Hawking. Our next guest is a humorist and stand-up comic who's appeared on Comedy Central and at the HBO US Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen, Colorado. You can read his work in Salon, The Onion, GQ, and Esquire. In 2009, as a writer for Conan O'Brien, he moved to LA to become a writer on The Tonight Show. Then, some stuff happened. (laughs) And now, he's a writer for Conan on TBS. Todd is the co-author of the hilarious sex manual, Sex, Our Bodies, Our Junk. Reading an excerpt from that book, please welcome Todd Levin to Lidewire. Hello, everyone. I'm going to be uh, reading uh, a selection uh, about threesomes, uh, and more specifically, the male-male-female threesome, the golden ratio. (laughs) Slandered viciously as the devil's threesome or the poor man's gangbang, A menage a trois between two gentlemen and one lady is actually the most beautiful and misunderstood of all sex acts. While some of the practices described in this chapter are, to say the least, not for everyone, the same cannot be said for a guy-guy-girl threesome. They are indeed for everyone. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Excuse me, Todd. Um, we hate to do this. This is so awkward. But this is uh, public radio, and we want this to air. Um, so, Todd, can you just go back to the top, and we'll have you read again, but I'll replace some of the spicy language and subject matter with uh, stuff that'll make our public broadcasting audience a little more comfortable. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> sure. Uh... Slandered viciously as the devil's... Tote bag... Or the poor man's... Terry Gross. 
a menage a Tabas Smiley between two gentlemen and one dedicated public radio listener is actually the most beautiful and misunderstood of all Snuffleupagus acts. Wait, what? You can't even say the word sex on public radio? Uh, no. See, Carl Castle kept sneaking it into the news stories and kind of ruined it for everybody. So now we're limited to up to five utterances per show, and we already used them all up. So. Okay. Uh, but you know the word that you, you, you chose to replace sex with was snuffleupagus. Snuffleupagus, yeah. Which is like ten times more disturbing, actually. <laughs> really? I, yeah. I don't know. I think it sounds kind of cute. I mean, he gave her a snuffleupagus. Isn't that nice? Put your snuffleupagus inside me. <laughs> I hear Ira Glass always pays for a snuffy. Okay, see? Okay. All right. You do have a point there. All right. It's very cute. I will continue. Okay. There's no... Visit to Lake Wobegon. That can't be improved upon by the presence of... Click and clack. At the foot of the... World Cafe. Crouching while he sips a... This American Life coffee mug thank you gift. And waits to be tagged in. The aroma of his sport scent deodorant. His subtle grunts as he registers approval for each of your... Pledge drives. His kind offer when the delivery boy arrives with the... Michelle Norris homemade muffins. You know... In the passage, I was just saying Mexican food. I mean, you didn't have to replace the phrase Mexican food. Uh, better safe than sorry, you know. It seemed kind of borderline. I'm sorry, but this is bull. Uh, Shapiro. Hakama Ari. Ari Shapiro, correspondent, NPR. Keep going, Todd. I think it's going great, really. In fact, the rest of this passage is decent enough. I'll just, I'll just let you take it from here. I'd, I'd rather not, actually. What's the matter? I think this is going well. Oh, I'm sure you do think it's going well. And, and I appreciate that you want to be respectful of any sensitive public radio listeners out there. But it's hard to read like this. The whole thing makes me feel like... Forget it. Never mind. No, no. It's okay. We love talking about our feelings. Go on. You feel like you've been lakshmied in the sink. Right? Yeah. Like, like somebody McNeiled you right in the lairer. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you've been ubby-dubbied in the Zoom. Exactly. You're exactly right. I feel like you've bent me over a splendid table and just driven your magical trolley right into my land of make-believe over and over and over again. Then just left me there with my John Hockenberry hanging out like a fool, feeling more beat up and stretched out than a 1998 pledge drive tote bag. Basically, I feel like this whole segment was brought to you by the letters F and U. And honestly, I, I feel like this entire evening was just the literary equivalent of being double snuffied. Sorry. I'm just gonna, I'll take off now and you'll. Why don't you take All off? All right. Todd Levin. Todd Levin. Thank you. Thanks for keeping it clean, Todd. We're gonna chat with Todd for a bit. Well, welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks for having we're me. We're very pleased to have you here. Uh, you were actually here for you were here in Portland for Wordstock. Yes, yeah. Uh, a, a couple of months ago, and uh, we came here to read uh, from the book. Mm-hmm. A few of us. And I actually met you. I met you at the convention center, and uh, you told me that you were the one who wrote the Conan commercial where he's washing the desk, the sexy. Did you guys see that one? I've gotten a lot of 
personal emails from, from ladies about mm-hmm. that one. <laughs> and I don't know how they derived any pleasure from that at all, but they did. Like, I don't think I really realized, you know, I mean, when you write something like that, you think it's just, it's funny because who would want to see Conan washing a car in a sexy way in slow motion? But people do. They really, they mm-hmm. really do. Yeah. Well, funny is sexy. Not while it's happening generally, but, but yes, when yeah. someone makes you laugh, it's very sexy. Sure, sure. So, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about Conan and then, and then get to the book if that's okay. No, it's fine. It's great. You, had, you were a stand-up comic. You'd written a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you the first day that you worked for Conan O'Brien? Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would say the first six months were terrifying. Um, when I got hired, I got hired right at the very end of late night. And it was... You're not told much, you know, and it was definitely a, a probationary period. Uh, so I never knew, even though I was only at late night for, I think, the last six or eight weeks of the run, I, had, I still had no idea whether I was coming to L.A. with them. Uh, so every day was filled with terror. Uh, <laughs> I just was constantly worried about screwing things up. And, and it's, a, it's a strange environment because, uh, but, but a really good one because the writers have a lot of autonomy on the show. So instead of just pitching ideas and then having a lot of shows will have this where you pitch ideas and then a producer will sort of go through your script and say, okay, what do you need? You know, and he'll, he'll deal with all the various departments like props or costumes or whatever. You're in charge of all of that. So you're basically writing your pieces and then you're producing them and often directing them and working with an editor and you're signing off on every detail, which is great because you have, a tr- like I said, a tremendous amount of control over what you're doing but there's so many ways something can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And to have never done that before was, was quite scary. Well, and autonomy is really great if you've, been for, if you've been around for a while and you know what's going on, yes. but it's not great when you're brand new and I no didn't know who, was, who ran the props department. Yeah. Or, yeah, you just did, yeah. Like, little things where you wouldn't even consider, uh, you know, you wouldn't even think to ask certain questions. Like, uh, okay, well, if the raccoon is, is wearing a fez... You know, do you, do you, do you want to, do you want us to put a crescent moon on the fez? Do you want a tassel on the fez? Should the tassel be hanging in the front or the back? Like weird things like that. Should it be strapped under his chin? There are all sorts of questions that you don't <laughs> consider. I had that once where I, I wrote something at the Tonight Show where I just wanted, it was, the idea was that we'd have these traffic jams. We'd do these traffic reports and we'd fake it outside of the studio with little toy cars and stuff. And we'd pretend that there was a helicopter going over this traffic jam. And there was always something very stupid backing up the traffic. And one time, it was... <laughs> I had... Uh, it was a mouse parade. Sure. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I wanted them to build two floats for it uh, with live mice and everything. And one was a... It was a wedge of Swiss cheese with little holes in it that just said, a salute to cheese. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and the question came up of, well, do you want the mice to be able to peek out of the holes? And That's I hadn't even considered that, but yes, of course. <laughs> well, well, I'm not an idiot. Of course I want the mice to peek out of holes. You know? And that's how we did it. And we, they even built a little, like, uh, little sky roof. Or, or uh, what is it? Uh, like a little bubble on the top that a mouse could sort of look out the top of it. And a little step inside the cheese so he could stand on it. And yeah. Reach. Yeah. A little cheesy sunroof. Yeah, it's an extraordinarily talented group over there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the book is "Sex: Our Bodies, Our Our Junk." It's from the Association for the Betterment of Sex. Yes, a fake, now, a fake th- research group. 
the, a fake research book, and you've written this with four other writers? That's right. Um, and from McSweeney's The Daily Show, The Onion. And some would say that comedy writers may not be the best people to write a sex manual no. because they don't have a lot of sex. Right. I, How <laughs> do you respond to that? They are correct. Um, <laughs> but I think we're a, an excellent uh, group of people to write a book that has a lot of terrible advice about sex, which ah. is what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all just full of lies. There's nothing useful <laughs> in this book at all, and it's intentionally written that way. Yeah. yeah. And it's strange to me, because I have no interest in sex. I don't know why. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, <laughs> it gets you through the day. Um, like, I never really understood that. Like, I, I, I remember having this conversation with somebody, and we were talking about our, our worst sexual experiences. And this guy said in all sincerity that the worst sexual experience he ever had was the time that he was in a threesome with two women and he felt like he wasn't getting enough attention. Oh! oh. And that's, that's so far removed from, from my own sexual history. You know, it's so... I've never... Not a threesome. I've barely been in any twosomes. You know, like... I think... Maybe once in a 24-hour period, I had three onesomes, but I, like... That counts. So, I, yeah, I don't... That counts mathematically. <laughs> yeah. It does count. And, and I don't think any of the other authors of the book... I think all of our sexual histories are pretty vanilla. Well, did you actually learn anything about sex in writing this book? Yeah, definitely in, in the chapter on fetishes, uh, mm-hmm. I learned some things. Some things I'm not going to share. Uh, <laughs> some things I shouldn't share. Um... I mean, if you, if you can think it, someone has... Someone has... Yeah, someone has a website dedicated to it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. With a PayPal account. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I know there's, there's a specific fetish where people like to have food thrown at them. Yes. It's called splashing, right? Isn't it? Oh, yeah. There's a, or there's a magazine... Or, yeah, I think there's yeah. a magazine in England called Splosh or Sploosh or something. <laughs> um, I want, did you want to read just a quick, ex, an actual excerpt? Sure. Yeah, maybe the Uh-oh. list. Sure. This is, um, okay, this is from a, a, the section on your first time. Uh, this is on losing your virginity from a section called That First Time, a, a Night, Afternoon, or Car Wash to Remember. This is a Did I Just Lose My Virginity checklist. <laughs> losing your virginity can be a subtle sensation. Often the big moment can pass without your knowledge, and pretty soon some goons are dragging you from the haunted hayride, and you're thinking, oh, I get it. This is usually just what happens after lovemaking. Use this checklist as a guide. If you find yourself exhibiting ten or more of the symptoms indicated below, congratulations, you've technically lost your virginity. (laughs) And here are just some of the symptoms. You'll probably, a lot of these will be familiar to your audience. Um, Swollen tongue. Um... (laughs) Pants around the ankles, slash dress over the head, slash adult diaper in tatters. Really, any, any combination of those three. Um, are you covered in stage blood and glitter? Is your hymen missing? Is your wallet missing? Is your foreskin noticeably creased? Are you experiencing a strong but fleeting sensation that you've got it, quote, made in the shade? (laughs) 
is your shift manager at Cinnabon, angrily kicking at the locked employee restroom door. Are you suddenly no longer feeling anger toward your absentee father? Is Peter Frampton's guitar pick stuck anywhere on your body? And finally, are you hearing the faint, distant sound of God crying? That was really beautiful. (laughs) And it brings back a lot of memories of... I'm uh, a child. Cinnabon. (laughs) Mostly Cinnabon. So the book is Sex, Our Bodies, Our Junk... Uh, the co-author is Todd Levin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having it's been me. Fabulous. Thank you, That was Todd Levin, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we stimulate every part of your brain, including the area responsible for keeping track of which one is Dermot Mulroney and which one is Dylan McDermott. Seasonal Affective Disorder. Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Mr. Jim Brunberg. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the new Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their winter ale, Two Below. Two Below Winter Ale, pushed to a nearly freezing state, it has a bright, hoppy afterglow, like winter bunnies after a night of sweet, sweet lovemaking. <laughs> Thanks, New Belgium, and now, audience haiku. Jim, can I get some soul music? Sex is like warm pie. Sweetness lies in the unknown. Then you are pregnant. (laughs) Thank you, Jennifer. Um, Jim, can I get something kind of sad? Dashing through the snow. Kids at grandma's. Pour the wine. Sad be damned. Let's screw. 
Thank you, Doreen. And now from the audience, and possibly Texas, please welcome to read her own haiku, Tex. Jim, can I have some hedonistic disco? (laughs) The weather outside is gray, but you and I are gay, so let it snow. Thank you, Tex. Music on tonight's Livewire Radio is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Miss Spelt. She's healthy, a good alternative to wheat, and more organic than that woven hemp NPR tote bag you're sporting. (laughs) Thanks to Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Laura Veers. The tiny midnight caravan Made its way across the black hills As I watched from a distance The slow go and glow They're wandering in To the caverns of my heart Would you light the lamp, dear? Would you light the lamp, dear? And see fish without eyes Bats with their heads Hanging down towards the ground Would you still come I believe in you, in your honesty, in your eyes, even when I'm sloshing in the muck of my demise, a large part of me is always and forever tied to the lamplight of your eyes.
years. And now, as promised, he's been working very, very hard for the last 56 minutes. Please welcome back Mr. Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I love fake snow. It's so much easier to be heroic and magnanimous when you're rescuing people from something that doesn't actually exist. Then I can offer to jump your car, bloody my knuckles while putting chains on your ice-encrusted tires, and carry you through snow drifts, and guide you out of the parking lot with flares sprinkled generously amongst the fruit loops I sprinkled down in order for you to gain the traction that you actually don't need. It's so much easier to have something to talk about when you could theorize on the creation of something that won't happen, like sex with that woman at work who could care less about you that you treat so mythically that you imagine she lives in a hut overlooking the sea. You could tell her that if we get the two feet of snow we're supposed to get, how you're totally going to build a castle of snow and that you'd like to invite her over to see the snow unicorns that you built that live inside with carrot horns, which is more accurate if you think about it than snowman noses. Plus, that's sort of erotic, I guess. And then she can nuzzle and cuddle and breastfeed the snow models of the future children you might just happen to have that you made if she wants to practice for the future. And you don't mind if she does it in front of you because that's natural and that's what unicorn snow castles are for while the ceiling falls like a Laura Veer song, one flake at a time until it disappears completely like a sigh revealing a serenade of winter stars over our love. But if that got lame... I'd show around the empty streets deserted by lame drivers on the back of my Yamaha dirt bike with spike tires while she held on to my Loverboy t-shirt. And then if we got chased by ninjas in white outfits, not black ones, because they are snow ninjas, I would throw sex manuals at them to defend her honor because that's how educated I am on the martial arts as well as the love arts that I always carry a stack with me, and they make good weapons as well. And I'm the only guy working at Cinnabon who knows how to speak NPR and give her a double snuffy and perform a threesome or 1.5 twosomes and two feet of possible snow that will get right after hell freezes over if the wind out of the gorge is right, that is. Thank you. Scott Cole, that's our show for tonight. Thanks for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Justin Hawking, Todd Levin, and Laura Beers. Our house band was Jim Brumberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Jonathan Newsom. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Fitch & Associates, the Falcon Art Community, and Willamette Week. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you, fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kay Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Nalene Silva. House sound by Jeff Simmons. Thank you to Rose City Sound. 
The faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, performer Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pachinowski. Our guest writer this week was Ted Douglas. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management by Drew Flint. Stage management by Stephen Alexander. Theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.